good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. It is a rather peculiar song, isn't it? Take the world, but give me Jesus. Every time that we sing that, I am reminded of the great wealth that we have in him. And that great wealth that we have in him really does come in really two ways, I think. It comes by form of blessing, but it also comes by form of promise. Last week, we had the opportunity as we looked at Romans chapter 4 to see the blessing of faith. And we'll deal with this a little bit as we continue in this section, but just to notice and perhaps remind you of the blessing of faith. The blessing of faith is... Paul exposits it in Romans 4. The blessing of faith is that God counts righteousness apart from works of the law. The blessing of faith is that my sins are forgiven. The blessing of faith is that Christ's righteousness is credited to my account. This is the blessing of faith. This is what we receive. This is essentially the grounds of our hope. All throughout the book of Romans so far, when we've dealt with the sin, the trespass, the iniquity, all of the wickedness that the people have committed and seeing the due penalty of their perversion ultimately being death, I think we're all left standing, Lord, then how can I be saved? And then he breaks through all of the condemnation of Romans 2 and 3, but there's a righteousness that comes apart from works. And what does that righteousness give you? It gives you the righteousness of Christ. How do we come by this righteousness? We come by this righteousness through faith and through faith alone. But then we get to Romans chapter 4 and we see what does this faith, what is this blessing, and how do I receive it? Well, I receive it by faith, and that blessing is given to Abraham first and foremost, but then because of God's infinite grace and blessing, he bestows it to all those who are offsprings of Abraham, all those who are heirs of Abraham. And this morning, what I would like to do is spend a little bit more time dealing with the concept of our being justified through faith alone, our receiving the blessing of that faith, which is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. But the one that I really want to delve into this day is the promise of faith. Because when we sing that song, take the world but give me Jesus, what are we, what are we ultimately saying? There's a confession in that song, almost implied, implicit within it is that Christ is infinitely wealthy, that Christ has all the riches of heaven, that everything belongs to him. The psalmist would say it like this, that God owns the cattle on 10,000 hills. But it's not just materialistic blessings that we speak of, because at this point we would have to say that if the blessings are material, then we have many who are in the faith that do not have the promises of Abraham. But that is not the way that we understand the promises that God has made. And this morning, what I would like to do is take this passage. This is, I would argue, a rather clear yet difficult passage. Because if we understand this, if we can put to death our own interpretations, if we can put to death our own desires to justify ourselves by works, then we will see that in this particular passage is the greatest of blessings. Because God has guaranteed a promise. Now, this is an interesting word. And before we dive into the text, I just want to have this in your mind. Are the promises of God guaranteed to those who must work for it? Is the blessing of faith guaranteed to those who have to work for it? Can we say, can God promise, if it was dependent upon the creature, can he genuinely make a promise that is a guarantee if that promise is dependent upon the man who changes? Every morning he is different. 
And this morning, what I'd like to do is present to you a promise that has actually been guaranteed because the promise is guaranteed not dependent upon us, but dependent upon him. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. We're actually going to make our way to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. This is the word of God. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law here to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the, presence of the God in, whom, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed, against, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the flesh when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I come pleading to you. Lord, this is lofty and lovely. And Lord, as it is so often true, I fear as we come to it that we will fail. And Lord, if it was dependent upon man to communicate these truths, Lord, if it was dependent upon man to give light to them, then we would most certainly fail. But praise be to God, you've given us all that we need for right worship, the Spirit and the Word. And so, Father, I ask, would you by the Spirit empower the preaching of your Word? Lord, may it go out to the edification of the saints, to the encouragement of those who know Christ Jesus as Lord. And if there be any here, Lord, may you destroy any foundation that is built upon their own works. May they cast themselves on Christ and find in him the blessings that are given to Abraham and the promises as well. But above all, Lord, may they see the loveliness of Christ, who is our guarantee. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to this text, there are a couple of things that I really want us to understand. We really are transitioning and really all throughout Romans chapter 4 are blended arguments. These arguments are really rooted in this one concept that all the blessings of God come through faith. Apart from faith, then we have no means of laying hold of them. Last week we did spend time looking at the blessing of faith. That is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. But this week I want us to look at the promises of faith because there are lofty promises. Now as we look at these, what is important for us to understand is that not only is he laying out the promises that were given to Abraham, Abraham, and not only the promises, but also who will receive them. Because a promise given to Abraham ultimately means that there must be one to receive it. There must be an heir. As a matter of fact, as the covenant originally came to Abraham, Abraham's number one gripe, if you will, was, but Lord, I don't have any offspring. No one is here to receive this. And so this language of heir runs throughout this passage. And what I need us to see this morning is that the promised offspring, the promise of, of uh, inheritance, the promise of really wealth and reward 
come long before the law does. Secondly, that it is by no means can we become heirs by works. And lastly, the only means for us to become heirs is through faith. Now, what we need to do is look at the promises. So if you would turn your attention to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And I want to pause here because the very first three words give us really everything that we need to understand, everything that would perhaps come to the mind of the Jewish reader. I would remind you that in the book of Romans, as the church of Rome would receive this, it would likely be predominantly Jewish audience. They would hear these words and they would think, ah, the promises, the promises that were given to Abraham and his offspring. They would immediately think to themselves, ah, the promises that I am due. Ultimately, the promises that they are due based upon their physical birth, based upon the fact that they are children of Abraham through the lineage of Isaac. They said, these are my promises. Now, what's interesting is if you go back up, you'll see that Paul has just essentially eliminated a large number of those who perhaps are of the natural lineage of Abraham, but are not of a spiritual lineage of Abraham, which we'll deal with here in a moment. But the very first thing that I want to do is understand the promises that God gave to Abraham So if you have your Bibles, you might want to hold your place in Genesis chapter 15 as well. We'll be bouncing around that passage. But he promised them first and foremost land. And I'm using the word them because as you look at Romans chapter 4 verse 13 and 15, you'll see that the promises are ultimately to Abraham and his offspring. So the promise is not just to Abraham. The promise is also to all those who will come from Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15 verse 18, this is one of the promises that he gives them. He promises them ultimately a land. When the sun had gone down, in verse 18, it says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Listen to the language, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The very first promise of God was a promise of land. This promise that he has given to Abraham is a promise of not only just the land of Canaan. I would argue that in the light of the New Testament, it is not just this world or even a piece of dirt in the Middle East. Instead, it is, not, it is the new heavens and the new earth that we will receive a glorious and wondrous inheritance. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham. We know this really as we look at later passages in the book of Hebrews because Abraham wasn't longing for the dirt that he saw in the Middle East. Abraham was longing for a kingdom that was built without hands. He was looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And this, brothers and sisters, is a glorious promise. It's a glorious promise because the promise that he gave to Abraham is also a promise to his offspring that there will be this great place. And even as we read the psalm, you hear this language of dwelling in the courts of God, of being in his presence forevermore. That's the beauty of this land. He is its light. And as we come to this land, as we see this promise given, this is that promise of land ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth that is to come. But then he goes on. It's not just a promise of land as we see in Genesis chapter 15. It also is a promise of a people. In Genesis 15, 4 through 5, it says this, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. We'll come back to that. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And we see in both of these promises a near and not yet fulfillment. Abraham's sons did enter into Canaan. But brothers and sisters, those who are of Abraham by faith will indeed enter into the new heavens and new earth. Abraham did have a multitude of people come from him. Even as we see that moment of the Exodus, it is a number so vast and so great that even to this day, people are confounded at the growth of Israel amidst slavery. God was faithful in the near. And I should say that if we understand that he is faithful in the near, we must also understand that he is faithful in the not yet. 
that there is, there will be a multitude without number. And even as we look forward into the book of Revelation, we will see that there is a multitude literally without number. This is the promise that he gave to Abraham, the near and the not yet. The near, yes, most certainly he will receive a lamb, the not yet being the new heavens and the new earth. The near in the people is Isaac and going forward from him, the nation of Israel. But then the not yet is the kingdom of God that he establishes upon the blood of the promised offspring, Christ. Then going on, he says he promises them that they would be a blessing to all people. In Genesis 12, this is actually the first interaction. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, he looks at Abraham and says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, you're, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, we see the near and the not yet. The near is we see those people of Abraham enter into slavery and as they make their way out, what occurs? The nation is cursed, the people are plundered, and they walk out wealthy. We see the near, but better yet, we see the not yet. The blessing, the true blessing, is that we will be delivered from slavery in Egypt and we will be made wealthy by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he will deliver us and he has delivered us and he has blessed us ultimately with the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness as he has already developed earlier on in Romans 4. Now, this is the promise that he gives. Certainly, perhaps in your mind, you're thinking of Galatians, where it says this offspring that we're considering is the promised one. The offspring is not Isaac. The offspring is not the nation of Israel. The offspring is not even those who would be united to, Ab- not united to Christ by faith, just like the faith of Abraham. But the promised offspring is Christ. We'll come back to that concept. But what's important for us to see here is that all these promises would have been swirling around in the mind of the Jew in this congregation. They would have heard this. They would have considered the promises of God that were given. And they would have linked that promise uniquely to the fact that, this, that they are of their father Abraham. And they would argue at this point, perhaps, that they're of their father Abraham by a natural lineage. But if I could point out to you this, if you jump back up in verse 9, you see this simple phrase. After Paul, after Paul has just developed the concept of the imputation of righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, there's this question that perhaps he's perceiving is going to take place in the mind of the Jew because they would have said those promises, that blessing belongs to me. And the question that he asks is, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We know the answer to this question. The answer to this question is that it is for all those who have the faith of the father Abraham. And as he looks at this, he essentially brings in the Gentile and says, if you have faith in all these promises, they're yours. If you are one who is circumcised, you're of the Jewish nation, but you do not have faith, these promises are not yours. Ultimately, these promises, what we have, these promises are given. These promises are given to Abraham and ultimately to Abraham's offspring. Who, do we, who are Abraham's offspring? Notice what verse 11 says. He received the sign of circumcision as a, seal of his, uh, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Notice this. The purpose was to make him, really interesting language, father of all who believe without being circumcised. If you jump down to verse 12, it says, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He makes entry into this nation faith. But it's always been faith. The means by which we receive the blessing of God is by faith. The promise is given to Abraham and to his offspring. The blessings are given to Abraham and his offspring. Now, 
Perhaps it is in the mind of the Jewish reader, they would think, ah, but what of the law? Why, why then do we have this? And Paul immediately goes into a historical argument. I want you to see in verse 13 again, he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now this is really in a precise historical argument, almost this is the conclusion, if you will, because all throughout the book of Romans so far, Paul has waged this war a very clear and precise war of aiming to justify yourself by works. He does this in a philosophical way. He does this in a theological way based on promise. And now he does it in a historical way. And I think that this is ultimately the nail in the coffin. If you ever think that you might be justified by your works, he says it's it's such an impossibility that the law didn't even come till much, much later. Notice the language again of what it says here. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. Why did it not come through the law? There are two major things that we should see from this. First, he's just dealt with the concept of circumcision, but circumcision, but the promise that God gives to Abraham comes before he was ever circumcised somewhere between 14 and 22 years before he was circumcised. It was an impossibility that it was dependent upon anything that he did or any mark that laid upon him. Why? Because the promise was given long before he was circumcised. So the Jew in this moment might immediately think, well, well, if the promise was given apart from circumcision, the promise can be had apart from circumcision. Because brothers and sisters, when God declared Abraham righteous, he was righteous. That 14 years, that 22 years, whatever the span of time existed between Abraham's being declared righteous and his circumcision, he was always righteous in those years by God's declaration, by God's blessing. And then perhaps they might say, ah, but what of Moses? Well, Galatians chapter 3 verse 17, I think really brings this home for us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 17, he says this, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. How completely, how apart from works is our justification? 430 years. It's 430 years apart. All throughout this letter, Paul has made this statement over and over and over again that we are justified by faith apart without the help of the law. Brothers and sisters, the reason this is so important for us to understand is because if we do not depend, if we do not rest upon justification by faith alone, we make God a liar. We void his promises, as we'll see here in a moment. But the beauty is that the promise ultimately came not by the righteousness that we might muster up, because if that was the case, then we would have no hope whatsoever. But if it came back, based upon God's promise, if it came based upon God's blessing, then we can count that with great confidence. We could even say, as this text does, it is a guarantee. When we consider the righteousness that God genuinely saves by, we can never account it to the law. It is 430 years away at the day that Abraham is counted righteous. Should we add the law to it, then we have corrupted it. So then, if it's not through the righteousness of the law, because the, literally the history says that there is a preeminent covenant, that there is a covenant that precedes the covenant that is through, the, through Moses. Going back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, it said, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So that leads us to ask, what covenant is Galatians speaking of? We know that it's 430 years before the giving of the Mosaic Law, and I would argue the covenant that we're speaking of is the covenant that is ratified in Genesis chapter 15. 
The promise has always come through the righteousness of faith. And I am convinced that Genesis chapter 15 does an extraordinary job of laying out exactly what that means. Let's turn our attention there. In Genesis chapter 15, as you've already heard Blake read, I'll remind you of it here. It says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now I want you to notice this section. When the sun had gone down, remind you, just remember for a moment where Abraham is in this moment, or Abram is in this moment. Abraham's asleep. God has literally placed him in a coma, for lack of better terms, and says that I'm going to reveal these things to you, but you're in the corner over there laying on the ground sleeping. And this is what takes place as Abram is sleeping. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now, this is actually rather peculiar. It's peculiar because the language here says that God made a covenant with Abram, but Abraham is not participating in the covenant at all. If you notice what's taking place here, there have been animals that have been split in two and been placed on either side, and they have essentially made a hallway, if you will, of carcasses. The whole concept here is that I'm going to enter into covenant, and if I break this covenant, what happened to these carcasses must then happen to me. I will be split in two. If I break the covenant, if I ruin this promise, then I deserve death. That's the whole premise of covenant. That this covenant that's being made in Genesis chapter 15, this covenant is the covenant that ultimately bestows Abram with both the blessings and these promises that we have already thought, spoke of. But Abraham doesn't participate. Abraham doesn't participate. Abraham's asleep. And then we see this imagery. And this imagery is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. If this covenant is with Abraham, why isn't Abraham going through? Why is this promise not conditioned upon Abraham's obedience? Because then the promise could never be guaranteed. Because Abraham, just like his father Adam, would break that covenant in moments. He would ruin it, and immediately, not only would he ruin it, he should be sawn in two like the creatures that he himself had just sawn in two. The promise is given to Abraham. Now, here's what's interesting. As we look at this text, ultimately what we see is that God covenants with himself. And if God covenants with himself, brothers and sisters, we serve the immutable God, the unchangeable one. This covenant, I am convinced, is the covenant that would go all the way back even into eternity past that God covenanted to give Christ a people that God covenanted to give blessings and honor and glory to Christ. And here we see a lovely and beautiful visual representation of it. God covenants with himself to bring about the blessings and the promises. Because if it was dependent upon the creature, the promises could never come. And we'll see here in a moment why. But I think at the exact same time in this moment, we see something of an illustration. And I've always wondered as I've come to this text, what is Abraham saying as he's sleeping? Well, he's sleeping But what's the point? Why are we recording the fact that Abraham is asleep? Why are we recording the fact that this covenant's being made, that there's these two parties that ultimately represent God himself making this covenant with himself, and Abraham's over in the corner asleep? 
And the reason I'm convinced that Abraham is in the corner asleep is so that Paul could expound this glorious reality in Romans chapter 4. Because what we see in Abraham, as you see him sitting by the wayside, sleeping and silent, do you know what you see? You see the righteousness that comes by faith. He is literally doing nothing. Last week when we spoke of this faith and, the, and really what it looks like, you know what faith does? It casts itself on the promises of God. And as Abraham is sleeping, whether he knows it or not, he is preaching to us. He is telling us the covenant that God made with himself is not dependent upon me or anything that I have done. It's wholly dependent upon his grace. And he bestows it and lavishes it on all that would look there and say, I need not get involved. I know that I am there. I don't know why I'm there. I don't know how I'm there. I certainly don't belong there, but there I go. His covenant is with himself and his covenant is with himself. And yet it is right to say the covenant is for Abraham. Why? Because God covenanted with himself, but praise be to God. He has made a multitude without number. It's benefactor. I'm nowhere involved in this. I am wrapped up in it in some rather glorious way, but I have done nothing in this covenant. I simply have been brought in by grace. God has done all of the work. He has accomplished all that was necessary for redemption. He has made it clear in the near and in the not yet, ultimately finding its fulfillment in the man Christ Jesus. But somehow when I look at Abraham and I see that covenant, I see Abraham sitting back and saying, it's done. The covenant is ratified. And here I stand, it's glad benefactor. So what do we see in Abraham as he sits silently sleeping? We see a great and glorious demonstration of a saving faith that looks there and longs to add nothing but trust the promises of God. Now, what of the fool? I do not have a better word. Frankly, I feel like that one is a bit too gentle. What of the fool then that would look at this grand covenant and say, I must be involved? I must be involved. And he immediately deals with this. I want you to notice again. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So let's just say that it did come through law, that it did come through my participation. How then should we understand this covenant? What does it do when we inject ourselves into the covenant of God and long to participate in that divine covenant? Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. Why? Because faith adores. Faith sees the promises of God and says, What beauty and majesty. Faith adores. And faith adores to such a degree that he says that if anything is added, it will be ruined. Because it actually is perfect, not in the way that we use the word perfect, but in the truest sense of the word. That it, if anything is added, if anything happens to this perfection, that it will then be imperfect. What we have in the covenant of God is a perfect promise. And if I interject anything into that promise, then I have done a great violence against it. And it's quite clear that I do not adore the promise, I abhor it. Why? Because I long to be a participant. Essentially, I think maybe the easiest way for us to, stand, to understand this is if Abraham, looking at this covenant laid out before him, would then rush and enter into it, perhaps longing to take the place of either the pot or the torch. And he says, I want to be in this. And immediately what would have happened? He would have been done away with. He would have been conquered for he cannot keep that covenant. 
the perfect upholding of the law as we see our Lord do. He had fulfilled every promise that God had given, every prophecy that God had given concerning him in the Old Testament. We see him fulfill all righteousness with perfect obedience. Brothers and sisters, if this righteousness was dependent upon us, then we wouldn't make it through the bloody hallway that was the covenant. But what we see in Christ what we see this true promise being that is apart from us, if we were to interject ourselves in it in anger and frustration, longing to, be some, longing to be somehow responsible for the salvation that we have, then it is a great demonstration that we do a violence against faith. We hate the promises of God because we long to have some participation in it ourselves. Or perhaps should we bring this forward? Not only of Abraham looking at this covenant and saying, I long to participate, but perhaps it is that we could place ourselves in the New Testament for a moment. Maybe John, as John sits there and he sees his Lord crucified, as he sees the darkness come, as he sees those three hours of torment, three hours of infinite suffering come upon him, and instead of standing there in fear and awe, knowing that somehow what's taking place he is a participant in, in a way that he could never fathom. Instead, he would long to yank the Lord down. He would long to interject himself. Brothers and sisters, he would have robbed the, the gospel of all of its glory. Why? Because he hated. He would have hated the promises of God and longed for his own participation. Brothers and sisters, if we long to justify ourselves by works, this is ultimately what we do. Don't, don't misunderstand when you long to interject your works, it is not something that is benign in nature. It is vicious and hateful. It assaults the glory of the gospel of Christ. It says that Jesus is insufficient. If you would look at Christ in all of his glory and say there must be something added, then you have not seen him at all. Because if you've seen him, then you know that he is altogether lovely, that he is the spotless lamb of God. He is that lion of Judah, that the promise that God made that has come to fruition, you would not touch because you know it is perfect in every way. And so you say, well, I want to interject my works anyway. Let's consider what this ultimately does. In verse 14, again, it says, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, meaning that you come by all of those promises by your own participation. First, we see that faith is null. It's been canceled. Why? Because you have demonstrated your hatred of it. And a demonstration of your hatred of the object of your faith is saying that you don't have faith at all. Because remember, faith is only as strong as its object. And you've demonstrated that the object of your faith is not so beautiful as, to not desire, as for you not to desire to add something to it. If you see Christ and see him rightly, faith will always be strong. Faith is never null if, it, if the object of it is Christ. But not only that, it goes on to say that the promise is voided altogether. Why is the promise voided? Because law considers all your works. Have you ever noticed that when people begin to think about their own concept or their aim to justify themselves, they always only consider their good works? Always. You never see them consider their bad works. You never consider, they never consider their sin. They're always thinking, ah, oh, but I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Who cares? Who cares? You're worthy of condemnation, wrath, and fury for every sin that you've committed. And if you long to present your works, then ultimately what must be had is all of them laid out, open and exposed before the Lord of glory, the one who is just and right in all that he does. And brothers and sisters, if amidst your good works, and perhaps it is that you think you have some, there is much sin. And if there is much sin, we call that transgression. 
that God's law has been clearly laid out at the time of Paul's writing, and you have transgressed it. You have done violence to the promised one by saying that you long to have all of your works laid out, and you have transgressed his law. Do you know what comes with transgression? According to this text, it says in verse 15, now this may seem like an odd verse, but I think it's essentially a negative statement that's making a positive point. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Brothers and sisters, if you stand before God and you say, justify me by works, he will examine each and every one of your works. And each and every one of your works will ultimately bring about or work wrath. That wrath will then be due you. So what then can we say for those who would long to present them their works before the Lord? We would say that the law then considers all of your works. You have nullified your faith altogether. And that where there is law, there is transgression. And where there is transgression, there is wrath. And you have voided the promise for penalty. You have said, oh, I want the promise of God, but I want it by my own merit. You can't have it that way. He has not left that door open. And brothers and sisters, if the door was open, you don't have legs. You're not going to make it through. You don't have the ability to have perfect righteousness. If we go back to Romans chapter 2, we see quite clearly that there is not a single one who will be able to do this. And Galatians says it quite clearly. No one will be justified by works of the law. Now, you asked this, perhaps, or at least I did. As I was working through this text, I thought to myself, goodness, Lord, I have hit and dealt with longing to justify yourself by works for three chapters for three chapters. And I'm thinking, can we be done with this? Can we move on? And you know, as I considered this, I thought to myself, it's almost an annoyance that I'm having to keep coming back to this. Do you know what's really annoying? Is the fact that somehow this dead, wicked man still longs to present his works before God. He's still there. And the reason Paul hits it over and over and over and over again is because we keep doing it over and over and over again. If we go all the way back to Cain and Abel, you see that very thing present. Cain says, look what I have done. See what I have grown. I have done all of these great things. Look how beautiful of the things that I have. And Abel says, here's the way that you have prescribed. And I trust your promises. And God gave regard to Abel. Or perhaps we would jump forward and we would say, oh, but Abraham, let's consider him for a moment. What if Sarah and Hagar? Abraham said he believed the promises of God, and yet he then goes and he takes another wife essentially for himself and has Ishmael. He doesn't believe the promise of God. He goes back to aiming to see the promises of God come about by works. And then I would hate to even bring up simply you and me. How often... Have we heard these promises? How often have we heard, and we would even say, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And then we would go back and we would say, ah, but Lord, look what I've done. And perhaps it is. I find that it is indeed often the good works that we would present. We would say, Lord, I shared the gospel today. And you wait for some extra righteousness to be lavished on you, brothers and sisters. You can add nothing to the righteousness of Christ. It matters not how good and how upstanding you are. You will not exceed his righteousness that he has lavished on you. You have gone back to works. Brothers and sisters, if I could communicate one thing from the entire book of Romans up until this point, is that this man who longs to justify himself by his works must die. He must die. And if he dies, do you know what I find? 
the life that is actually left in me, do you know what it does? It simply lays before Christ and sees the promises of God are indeed yes and amen in him. And if they're yes and amen in him, then I can lay there like Abraham, sleeping, resting on those promises. There need be no works from me. Now, praise be to God, he does not leave me as I was. When I come to saving faith, he births works in me, and I long to be obedient to him, but my obedience does not produce the righteousness of God. He's given me all of it already. And so I stand embracing the promise. And so why does he hit this over and over and over again? Because, brothers and sisters, the natural man goes to it over and over and over again. And I pray that every single saint at this church and every single saint around the world, when that man rises up, put a sword to his neck and kill him. For he longs for nothing more than your death. He longs to make faith null and the promise void. Now, how then do we actually have this faith? How is it that we become an heir? All those promises cannot be ours by works. How can they be ours Let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 4, verse 16. This is why he re-elaborates, if you will, his original point. He says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of its offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. First, let's go back and understand from Romans, from Romans 4, 11, and 12 what it means to be a son of Abraham. Now, Notice this verse because there's some really dynamic language in these two verses. I mean, I would argue offensive language if you rest the promises on your natural birth. I mean, it would have been an assaulting, it would be a bludgeon to those who rested on their works. Romans 4, 11 through 12 says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could, would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised by, but who, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so essentially the statement is, how do, how do you become an heir? How is it that all these promises, all the blessings that we've spoken of, how do they become yours? He's, he's, he's thrown out works and said it's an impossibility in that way. And then he says, it's faith. Have you depended on Christ? Have you depended upon the promises of God? Because if you've cast yourself there, then those promises are actually yours. And if you notice here, he even then goes to the extent of excluding a people who would rest upon their works as their means of inheriting the promises of Abraham. If you're just circumcised and you don't have the faith of Abraham, then you're not of Abraham. Now you can imagine the fatal blow this would be to the Jew who rested all these promises on the fact that he was in the lineage of Abraham. But Paul says, if it's by faith, then you have your father, Abraham. Now, if it's dependent upon faith, which I would remind you again, that faith is that which casts itself before the Lord and simply believes him. Then, all of a sudden, it is not dependent upon works, it's dependent upon grace. I want you to notice the language here in verse 16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. You know the phrase that we use often in our world, that there are only two things guaranteed in this life, and it's death and taxes. But brothers and sisters, if we lay hold of Christ by faith, all the promises of God are guaranteed to us. Guaranteed. I mean, there are few words stronger 
it means that that promise will come to fruition. We always consider these promises, and we always, even, even as we make promises to our children and to others, there's always something that could interject and cause us to break the promise, even if it is not by our own will. But it is not so with God. When God makes a promise, this promise will come to fruition. It is a guarantee. It will come to pass. What promises are we guaranteed? We are guaranteed the blessing that we saw earlier on in Romans chapter 4. All those who were of Abraham received that blessing, that forgiveness of sin, and that imputation of righteousness. If I've lay, laid holds of Christ by faith, that means all the grace that is channeled to me from him is actually mine. It will come to me. And the forgiveness of sin is not a temporary promise that I can break. It is a promise guaranteed by the cross of Christ. He has indeed conquered every sin in him. And so I stand with all of my sins forgiven. And not only that, but should I look even a bit further, I would see all the righteousness of Christ, as Paul makes it abundantly clear to us time and time again, is actually mine. How mine is it? I can't break it. I can't break it. It's guaranteed to me. The righteousness, of, the righteousness of God is guaranteed to me. And as it clothes me, my immediate concern is I can ruin this. And God says, if it's by works, absolutely. But if it's by faith, if it's by grace, if it's just casting yourself before me, then you can't break this. I promised it. I guaranteed it. And my covenant is not first and foremost with you. It's with myself. And I will be faithful and so what we see here is this, that the blessing of faith, the blessing of forgiveness of sin, the imputation of righteousness is the blessing that only comes to Abraham's offspring by faith. And that blessing, because it flows from grace, it is lavished freely upon those who are united to Christ by faith, then it is most certainly a guarantee. For lack of better terms, you can take it to the bank. We have it and it is ours forevermore. But not only do we say that, it read, that, that, that we have the blessing of faith, which is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, we must also say that we have the promises of faith. And I would remind you, because I think the not yet is what we must meditate upon most, most uh, rightly today. We don't think back to the promises that God gave to Abraham in regard to land or in regard to Israel. We think forward to the promises that he has made to us. Those promises that he has made to us is that we will have a land. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you how sweet this land is. We call it the new heavens and the new earth. What is so lovely about this land is the guarantee, the promise that God has given us has actually come completely to fruition. It's no longer us looking forward to it. It's us enjoying it. And as we enjoy it, do you know what we find in that blessed place? We find the presence of our God and King forever reigning. He is the light of that place. Where is sin? It has been dealt with altogether. Not only its consequence, not only its power, but ultimately its presence. It is cast so far away that no saint will ever see it again. It is light in all light. It is joy in all joy. It is Christ and it is all Christ. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise that God gave to his people. We have them as a guarantee by grace through faith. You want to work for it? You'll get what you earn. You'll get tribulation and distress. These promises are, is first and foremost to those who have laid hold of Christ by faith. And so the promise is to all who share the faith of Abraham. And not only, I think this is something we often overlook, not only is it the land that we receive, but oh, how sweet it is that there is a family established. You know, I was thinking even as we were singing of just the sweetness of the unity of voice. But you know, the, the beauty of the unity of voice is that I know the saints in this blessed place. And I know that there is a sweet unity that is had here. And I know that that sweet unity isn't even the substance of my hope. 
the, the, the unity, the family of God that I am so thrilled to be a part of is the one that will, in great harmony, sing around that throne, holy, holy, holy forevermore. There is a lasting promise. He has given us foreshadows of it here and now. But oh, how sweet it is that that promise that is guaranteed first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ and then all those who are in him, that promise of a new heavens and new earth and a people, oh, praise be to God that I am a part of that people that my voice will be lifted around the throne, that your voice will be lifted around the throne to sing holy, holy, holy. Why? Not because we have earned it and merited it, because brothers and sisters, my biggest concern with all of this as I look at it is that I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve a land that is so glorious and so lovely. I certainly don't deserve to have a people around me that is all joy and all grace and all beauty. And I would say that this text actually tells us the exact same thing because grace always implies that we don't deserve it. I mean, just notice what it says here in verse 16. Again, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The promise rests on grace because I am completely incapable of meriting it for myself. Someone else had to merit it for me. And then I would turn your attention to Galatians 3. Because as we work through this, and as we consider this concept of I am the offspring of Abraham, and brothers and sisters, if you have laid hold of Christ by faith, you are rightly called a son or daughter of Abraham. But there is another that is the son of Abraham. And this son of Abraham is the reason that you have that you have right, that you can say that it's a guarantee that I will have the new heavens and new earth, that I will have the forgiveness of sins, that I will have the imputation of righteousness, that I will dwell forever with my God and King. Well, who is this offspring? Going back to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, it says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, this is a very important text. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. All of these promises, this is what is so interesting about this passage. All of these promises, first and foremost, are to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has merited a new heavens and new earth. He is the one who has merited a life and life eternal peace and, and fellowship with God forevermore. Now here is what is so staggering. Somehow then, I am included in that covenant. But praise be to God, that covenant was with God and the Son. And God is faithful to His Son. He will make sure that He receives all the reward for His blessed works here. And if we turn over into Romans chapter 8, that language of heir presses through. Because as we consider the concept of being an heir, Christ is an heir of all of these riches. And what is staggering here is in verse 14 of Romans 8, I get thrown in. Notice what it says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, 
heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The beauty of this covenant it is, that, is that it is first and foremost with the Lord Jesus Christ, but by adoption, by being ransomed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the light, being under our elder brother who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that means that all of his promises, the inheritance that he has earned, now can rightly be called mine. And that is the most foolish thing that I think I will ever preach. Because I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve a new heavens and a new earth. I don't deserve the glorious family of God. But Christ does. And since Christ does, somehow I'm like Abraham. And I'm looking at that covenant and I'm saying, I'm there. I don't know how. I don't know why. But there I sit in the covenant of God, blessed in the beloved, adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say, praise be to God for the righteousness of faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come rejoicing because we know that we have no, we shouldn't be here. And yet we are. And we would be fools to say, that we must leave because you've guaranteed it to us through, our, through your beloved son, Christ, the promised offspring, the one, who is, the one who has redeemed us, Lord, the firstborn brother. But Lord, you tell us over and over again that he is the firstborn among many brothers. And here we stand, brothers and sisters of Christ, his younger siblings ransomed from the curse of the law, ransomed from the labors of the law for the purpose of justification. Instead, Lord, we stand here being justified by the righteousness of faith. We know that it depends upon grace and grace alone. And so, Father, we rejoice in that one great reality, Lord, that we have been lavished all the promises of God. They have come to us because Christ merited them. And so, Father, may we rightly claim them May we say the new heavens and the new earth is mine. The forgiveness of sin is mine. The imputation of righteousness is mine. And Lord, in every claim of mine, 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 may we say because it was Christ's. May we find ourselves in him. That blessed refrain throughout all of the New Testament, we are in him. May that be our boast. For Christ is worthy of worship and praise. We know that, Lord, there's no praise due us. It is all due our elder brother. And so, Father, I ask, even as we now respond, may we sing his praise. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen.